You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. John Davis is executive director of the Rewilding Institute and editor of Rewilding Earth. For Rewilding, he serves as a Wildways scout, editor, interviewer, and writer. He rounds out his living with conservation field work, particularly within New York's Adirondack Park, where he lives. John serves on boards of Restore the North Woods, Eddy Foundation, Champlain Area Trails, Cougar Rewilding Foundation, and Algonquin to Adirondack Conservation Collaborative. You can read more about John's background and work at rewilding.org, starting with his latest article, Rewilding Distilled, which takes you through the fundamentals of rewilding. And that's just where we're starting today, with John's definition of rewilding. For me, rewilding means restoring original nature, returning the missing species to a landscape, getting that landscape to be as natural as possible, as wild as possible. It means giving back to nature and quite literally giving back to nature, giving back to nature its original inhabitants that may have been extirpated from a region like pumas in the east and wolves in much of the West. So I think rewilding ideally is practiced at a very large scale, a regional landscape scale, at least preferably even continental. But I think that it is legitimate to speak about rewilding at smaller scales as well, provided we understand the, the goal really should be to allow nature to function in its own natural way with as little manipulation by people as possible. Giving nature back to wildlife and wildlife back to nature. And, to, and I would echo Dave Foreman's term, uh, will de yours, self-willed beasts, or the, the need to allow the land to express itself. So rewilding is about giving back to nature and letting it be itself, letting it be self-willed. Easier said than done, right? Certainly is. And it will mean very different things in different places. Uh, the re- in some places, rewilding may be a little bit hard to explain or to interpret. What, what does it mean in northern Canada, for instance, where the, probably almost all the species that have that survived the Pleistocene overkill of 12 to 15,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, the, all, virtually all those species are still in place. Does it make sense to talk about rewilding in northern Canada? Maybe that's not the right term there, but I think that we can broadly understand rewilding to mean, again, protecting and restoring wild nature on a grand scale. And in northern Canada, that's pretty easy because the damage there has been much less than in the more heavily inhabited parts. Much of the United States rewilding will mean, ideally anyway, closing roads, dismantling dams, uh, making making remaining roads more passable for wide-ranging wildlife and restoring the missing species. You just posted on Twitter, I, I can't remember the place, but there was a dam, a successful dam removal um, by example. Uh, do you want to talk about that really quickly? Sure, and that's a good example of what I think we might legitimately call, call 
local rewilding. This is a, 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 a river right near my home in Slit Rock Wildway in the eastern Adirondacks, the Boquet River, which was dammed long ago for a mill, I believe. And then the bit dam was kept in place, with some people arguing it was needed for flood control. That dam was blocking the upstream movement of landlocked Atlantic salmon, quite a rare type of fish because, of course, most fish have access to the ocean. They spend part of their lives in the ocean, part of it in rivers. These landlocked Atlantic salmon spend much of their life in Lake Champlain, and then they spawn in the, in the rivers that drain into Lake Champlain. But in many cases, many places, their migration for spawning purposes has been blocked by dams. And here uh, near my home in Slit Rock Wildway, the Boquet River was deprived of its Atlantic salmon for a long time. But now they are slowly recovering because this dam was, was dismantled. And to the credit of local officials, you know, too often local officials are are not very conservation-minded, not very supportive of restoration or larger-scale rewilding efforts. But in this case, local officials actually supported removing this dam. It was basically basically a deadbeat dam. And of course, we ran a nice article from Brad Micklejohn on the need to remove deadbeat dams a, a couple months ago in Rewilding Earth. This was basically a deadbeat dam. It no longer served a vital purpose. And so thankfully, conservationists and local officials together uh, raised this as an issue and got, I believe, some federal funding to have the dam removed. And now salmon are, again, working their way upriver. So it's local uh, scale, perhaps, but I would actually say it's regional in importance because this, is a, this should help contribute to a regional recovery of this, uh, this migratory fish, the salmon. Though it's local and, and small in scope relative to, to larger rewilding efforts. Do you think these kinds of things can help um, maybe just people's mindset toward dams? We have a really big battle raging in the Pacific Northwest right now with orcas and uh, traditional locked up salmon spawning grounds from several dams that I am not sure uh, uh, if they would be classified as deadbeat. I think they're still in play, and I think it's much more politically contentious there. But do you think efforts like yours weigh in on the collection of dams that are being removed? Does that help inform how we might come to a a good resolution uh, quickly as possible in places where it's a lot more contentious? Yes. I think that one of the best things we can do for wildlife, especially aquatic wildlife, but even terrestrial wildlife in this country and many other countries, is identify dams, man-made dams, not beaver-built dams. We, of course, applaud beaver-built dams. Mm -hmm. But identify human-built dams that are no longer serving a vital purpose. Now, if 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 they're truly protecting communities from floods or if they're truly providing power to those communities, maybe there's a a strong reason for keeping them up and functioning. But if they are no longer serving those those utilitarian needs, if they're simply blocking the flow of wildlife, they should be removed. The dam removal can can employ many people, can be a jobs production uh, initiative, and of course it it liberates. It restores free-flowing waters to the benefit of many fish species, otters, mink, and even the terrestrial animals that move so often along riparian corridors. And thankfully, we're seeing a growing interest in dam removal. Patagonia did that great film a few years ago, Dam Nation, 
yeah. uh, dams and dam removal. Great, great project. Wonderful film. Very inspiring. Uh, books have been written about it. American Rivers and other groups are identifying dams that should be removed. There's, there's really, a, and there's a, there's a whole um, a new initiative in Europe to remove deadbeat dams too. So this is, this is an aspect of rewilding that is quite popular. Sometimes among recreationists, often among recreationists as well as among conservationists, yielding a whole host of benefits. Most important to my mind being the benefits to wildlife, but but again too. Uh, benefits for outdoor recreationists, benefit for local economies in many cases. So I think the wildlife benefits alone much more than justify the effort to remove deadbeat dams, but there are ancillary benefits as well. And again, we should be, we should be identifying and removing human-built dams where, wherever we can. That will go a long way toward rewilding our country. It seems like there is uh, momentum building. There's momentum building. You mentioned the Patagonia film, and I had forgotten about that because I was thinking about the more recent successes. And I count them all. I count yours in a in a very small area, and I count you know there's not that many big ones to count yet. But it seems like we're building a momentum toward that, where people are starting to find a vocabulary, some way to feel the courage necessary to go up against uh, other interests. And they're really, they're using a time-tested conservation ploy of getting all the stakeholders holders in a row. Like in the Pacific Northwest, there are a lot of people who are interested in seeing orcas <laughs> in the wild. And if they're not having, you know, if they, if they don't have any more orcas, that's, that's it for that very, very large uh, spend in, in, those, in the states that benefit from those things. And that can be true for all the other things, terrestrial uh, or not, um, that people are, you know, the tourism industry. And Patagonia really struck a blow the, um, with uh, taking their conference uh, out of Utah. And um, Rick Ridgway on a, a former podcast was talking about the, the tens of millions of dollars of impact that that had. And uh, Patagonia does seem to be coming up and keep coming up in all of these uh, discussions about what I feel is people sort of getting the language and the courage to do something, to do rewilding on the ground. And you have been on the ground and you've met so many people, so many organizations, uh, activists. What does it feel like to you? What is the ground? Is the ground swelling? Is it, is it what I'm sensing? I think it is, Jack. <clears throat> and yeah, Rick, Rick, the podcast you did with Rick Ridgway was terrific. He was extremely articulate as always. And I'm, I'm glad he talked about how the Outdoor Retailers Association, which includes Patagonia and hundreds of other companies, many of them quite green, uh, how they moved their convention to Colorado to protest the anti-conservation policies of Utah state officials. That, that, that sent, sent a very powerful message to politicians that public lands are loved by Americans and Canadians and other, and other countries that are fortunate enough to have public lands. We actually are very fortunate in the United States and Canada, as Yvonne Chouinard and Peter Metcalf and other leaders of the outdoor industry have pointed out, we are extremely fortunate to have such an abundance of public lands available essentially free to all Americans and Canadians. In Mexico, there's not nearly so much public land and that poses challenges for outdoor recreation and for conservation. Um, to your question, yes, I think we are seeing a groundswell. There is, uh, as my good friend Tom Butler, former editor of Wild Earth, with whom I just visited, has, has, has said, rewilding is becoming something of a meme. 
it is catching on as a concept, as a theme, as an organizing principle. We are seeing a very strong rewilding movement in Europe, arguably stronger than what we have in North America at this time, perhaps partly because they need to rewild even more than we do. They have much less of their original native biological diversity left than we are fortunate to have in North America. But here too, the idea, the concept is catching on. More and more people are engaged in at least proposing to, if not actually dismantling dams. And there's a whole host of work we can do on human-built infrastructure that is essentially rewilding, along with dam removal. We can remove unnecessary roads. For instance, on public lands in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of miles of roads that were built to facilitate logging operations or ranching operations or other types of land exploitation. Many of these roads could be removed. They could be obliterated and revegetated. That is good, wholesome, healthy rewilding work. It benefits wildlife. It benefits natural communities. In the long run, it will save taxpayers money. It costs a great deal of money to maintain roads in the backcountry. I've heard land managers say, if you figure it out over decades, it's thousands of dollars per year per mile to maintain a typical backcountry road. So closing unneeded roads and obliterating and revegetating them will actually save taxpayers money, restore wildlife habitat, and it particularly benefits streams because roads bleed sediment into streams. So, so along with clo uh, obliterating unneeded dams, we should be obliterating and revegetating unneeded backcountry roads on public lands. We should also be making the, the, uh, the infrastructure we use much more permeable to wildlife movement. Every, you know, most major roads that cross relatively natural areas should have safe wildlife crossings. They should have bridges over or tunnels under, or preferably both, where animals can safely cross. And of course, these need to be put in the right places. You need to study where the animals are trying to cross the road. You need to provide fencing that funnels the animals toward the crossing. You don't want to just hastily put in wildlife crossings without proper study. But with proper study, they quickly prove to be very effective and they generally pay for themselves in a relatively short amount of time. So another type of rewilding we can do, along with dam removal and road obliteration, is putting in safe wildlife crossings on major roads. And then, of course, there's the whole very ambitious area of restoring the missing species. And I think we could provide gainful, meaningful employment for thousands of people around the country, restoring you know, doing the studies necessary and then doing the habitat restoration necessary and then doing the actual release of missing species. This needs to be done very compassionately, very carefully, because individual animals are involved, not just species. You don't want to, you don't want to deprive one area of a, of a native carnivore, say, to restore it in another area. And you don't want to disrupt a family of wolves, say, or pumas in one area to restore them to another area. You need to be very compassionate about the individual animals, even as you think about the benefits of restoring a missing species. So we need to do all this very thoughtfully, very carefully after considerable study. But yeah, the idea, the idea is gaining momentum. And it's partly gaining momentum because, well, I think we're seeing, I think we're seeing a resurgence of interest in natural areas and in wildlife watching. And as well, I believe that <clears throat> people are realizing that human beings benefit from 
being near unfragmented natural communities. There are all sorts of ecosystem benefits that more than justify the restoration of missing species, species in natural areas. I don't think we need to justify rewilding in human terms at all. I think rewilding should be done principally for the sake of the wildlife and the land itself. But there do happen to be many, many side benefits for human beings of being near intact natural communities with a full suite of, of native predators. Among those benefits are that with a full suite of native predators, including top carnivores, there is less likelihood of zoonotic disease outbreaks. I live much of the year when I'm not farther afield exploring. I live much of the year in the northeast United States, in Adirondack Park specifically, northern New York. Even here in relatively intact Adirondack Park, Lyme disease is becoming a very big threat, a very big worry. And studies on Lyme disease show that it tends to be most prevalent in fragmented ecosystems that have lost some of their native carnivores. If we had intact forests with a full suite of native carnivores, including pumas and wolves, we'd see less Lyme disease. You talked an awful lot there about uh, earlier about infrastructure. It reminded me of the things you see way, way out sometimes in wilderness, outside of wilderness, in buffer areas, national parks, of what the Civilian Conservation Corps built. Yes. Do you think that it's possible under the right political circumstances that we would have something set up in the future that might look a little bit like a reverse civilian conservation corps where the bridges that were mm. built in those years were now bridges and dams that will be taken out by a new citizen uh, conservation group directed by scientists, a lot of whom are directed by many or all of the aspects of rewilding to say these things need to go. We need this connectivity here. We need an overpass or underpass here. I mean, it just seems like all we need is, is that kind of leadership politically that would get behind. It would be a massive jobs bill. Um, and it would be yes. kind of ironic that it would be set up to take out a lot of what the original Conservation Corps put in. Do you think that that is yes. possible? I do think that is possible. Many of us had high hopes when Obama won the presidency 10 years ago, that he would revive the Civilian Conservation Corps, but do so in an ecologically sound, ecologically informed way. It didn't really happen. Some comparable things that did happen here and there. But I actually think we should revive, um, but ecologically educate the CCC. We need, we, I think we should have a strong Civilian Conservation Corps in the United States and probably in other countries too. Yet, that, yet, that yes, does undo some of the damage that earlier CCC efforts did. Um, and I don't actually, I think much of what this, I was not alive, but I've heard that <laughs> CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, actually did many very positive things along with providing jobs at a time of urgent societal need. I heard that many positive conservation benefits came from the CCC's work. So I don't want us to sound too, too critical of the old CCC, but we would want a new CCC to be well informed by conservation biology and ecology. And yes, infrastructure changes, sometimes just plain undoing what was done before. There may be bridges that should be taken out, dams that should be taken out, but probably often there would be build, um, bridge building again, but this time building bridges for wildlife, building bridges over busy interstate highways for wandering bears and pumas and wolves. That sort of work would be quite appropriate for the CCC, I think. Of course, you want proper engineering for any major 
structures. You don't want yeah. them just hastily constructed. But yes, I, I think that a, a new CCC could be a very valuable jobs creation program and could do good work to make the human built environment more compatible with the natural environment, the natural world. It sort of uh, sets your imagination on fire. Uh, typically, I look at any kind of bridges, any kind of underpasses, overpasses for wildlife as individual projects. I often don't see them because we don't see enough of them to really go, there's a movement happening here. There kind of is. Um, but when you let your imagination go to a civilian conservation core, meaning like a really big, broad effort from coast to coast, north to south, it really starts to get you excited about what's possible because people can identify with that. They saw the massive, um, what people called then, because of lack of understanding of what we know today and things like that, but uh, development and, and progress. They called all of those things development and progress. And some of those things actually were really very, very useful. Like you said, others were damaging only because we didn't know. We just didn't have the we language. We didn't know. We didn't have the science. We didn't right. know. We didn't have the studies. But it really does, really does make you kind of excited to, to picture that sometime in the future, what we might be doing the same kind of work with is for the benefit of wild things and people. That's right. But, uh, you know, their bridges and their underpasses and all the things that they could use. That's just, that's just a wonderful thought. It is a wonderful thing to imagine. I think it is quite possible if we had enlightened leadership in state and federal government. And it would as well allow us to face the prospect of climate chaos. Actually, we're already seeing climate chaos increasingly. So I believe we should be employing many, many people from engineers to, to basic manual laborers and everything in between to be making our infrastructure, our human-built environment, more permeable to wildlife movement at the same time as we make it more robust in the face of climate chaos. You know, our culverts and bridges and roads are not going to stand up to this, this century of, of extreme storms that we now face. We're seeing more and more of these Phoenix weather events, massive floods, huge hurricanes, and the like. We'll see more and more of this. We have to modify our infrastructure anyway to be able to stand up to the climate chaos. While we're doing it, let's make it more wildlife friendly. Let's make it so that animals can cross the road safely. And by the way, we save human lives when we make when we enable animals to cross roads safely, we also save human lives. Well, that's probably a, as much infrastructure talk that people listening to Rewilding Earth can tolerate. So let's get back directly to the critters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you good. mentioned earlier um, uh, pumas on the east, wolves on the west. What were you talking about there? Would you like to expand on that a little more? Sure. Well, the Rewilding Institute, and particularly through our publication, Rewilding Earth, We'll continue, we already have, we will continue to give a special emphasis to puma recovery in the east and wolf recovery in the west. There are hundreds of species that be, need to be restored in various regions of North America and throughout the world. Uh, I think there's value in focusing extra attention on those top carnivores that prove to be so ecologically critical for reasons that others of our rewilding friends have already explained on this podcast series and in rewilding earth articles. I don't need to go into all the ecological benefits of top carnivores and the, the trophic cascades that happen when you remove them. Suffice here to say, we need pumas in the east and wolves in the west. And actually we need pumas east and west, wolves east and west. 
But for practical purposes, I think in the near term, it may be uh, imperative we revive and redouble our efforts to restore the red wolf in the southeast, but also to bring the puma back. to the, the, the puma has been eradicated from all but southern Florida in the eastern United States. We need pumas ranging throughout the eastern deciduous forest to keep deer numbers in check and allow hardwood regeneration and healthy flourishing populations of songbirds and wildflowers and salamanders and other creatures. So puma reintroduction in the east is a very top rewilding priority, which rewilding earth will pay a lot of attention to. And then wolves have been returned to some parts of the west, but not most of the U.S. west. And I believe restoring wolves throughout the wilder parts of the western United States they survive in most of Western Canada. They do not survive in most parts of Western United States. So I think wolf recovery in the West and puma recovery in the East may be our two flagship issues in the coming years for a whole host of ecological reasons, but also because these flagship species can, can signify much more. If we have enough habitat for healthy populations of the pumas in the East, or of course, pumas are the same as cougars and panthers and mountain lions, all the same wonderful cat. If we're doing well enough by pumas, we're probably serving well most native species, not necessarily all, but they do serve as something of a, an umbrella for other conservation efforts, and likewise with wolves in the West. So in the near term, I think rewilding efforts in the eastern United States should focus largely, not wholly, but largely on pumas for an aquatic uh, counterpart for uh, I think the there there are many species to consider because many aquatic species have been diminished or even eradicated from parts of the eastern United States. But I think a particularly good one to consider is the American eel, as as our friend and colleague Michael Diamico has explained in various talks and articles. <clears throat> American eel are native in most of the streams draining into the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, and yet their numbers are badly diminished throughout their natural range. They're, they're something of an indicator species. They may also be a keystone aquatic species. They're also just plain remarkable. They're beautiful, at least to my eyes. Many people don't think eels are beautiful. I do think they're quite beautiful. They have this remarkable life cycle, which I urge any listener to, to look up. Look at, do a little searching on on eels in general, but particularly the American eel, just extraordinary creatures. And we've terribly diminished their numbers and their range throughout the eastern United States. I think they are a good flagship species for rewilding efforts in the east. So if we were to choose two flagship species for the east, I would probably vote puma and American eel. Yeah, and then, and then for the west, I would probably vote wolf for land and salmon for water. And of course, there are multiple species of salmon, but I think wolf and salmon are great flagship efforts for rewilding the West, puma and eel for rewilding in the East, although there are many, many other species. And one, and I think we should also be thinking about restoring diminished or missing plants. This is not all about animals. It's about the whole range of wildlife and wildlife includes plants and fungi and other creatures, not just animals. Uh, for <clears throat> For rewilding in the east, I think we should be paying a lot of attention to the American chestnut tree, which was wiped out by an exotic, pretty much wiped out by an exotic blight long ago. But great work has been done in, through crossbreeding to, to uh, bring about uh, a, an American chestnut variety, which is blight resistant. It may soon be feasible to plant 
chestnut trees that are basically 99% American chestnut with just enough of the Chinese chestnut genetic material that they are blight resistant and can reproduce. The American chestnut was probably a keystone species in much of the East. And I think there's some speculation that part of the cause of the extinction of the passenger pigeon was they lost one of their main food sources when American chestnut trees were wiped out by the blight. I think we should be talking about replanting American chestnut trees in appropriate habitats once the blight resistant ones are available. And I'm wondering, I do a lot of, much of my local rewilding work is in Split Rock Wildway, which is a wildlife corridor linking Lake Champlain to the Adirondack High Peaks through the West Champlain Hills. And we seem in Split Rock Wildway to be about at the northern end of the American chestnut's original range. And I work with several land trusts that own lands in Split Rock Wildway, some of which are old fields, old farmlands, slowly coming back to forest. And I'm proposing to colleagues that we investigate the feasibility of planting disease-resistant American chestnuts once they are available um, to help bring back a more natural forest and a forest that has abundant food, abundant mast nuts. American chestnuts were really important partly because they produced an abundance of nuts. And of course, the, 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 nuts that the nuts that come from trees are important food for bears, turkeys, deer, squirrels, and many other animals. So uh, along with thinking about restoring the missing animals, we should think also about plants and other creatures that may have been diminished or even eliminated from parts of the country. And I think we should um, especially consider rewilding efforts in the continental wildways that Dave Foreman identifies in his classic book, Rewilding North America. We should be rewilding wherever possible, saving and restoring land wherever possible, but especially in these broad swaths of still relatively intact habitat that Dave Foreman identifies in Rewilding North America, particularly the Atlantic Appalachian Wildway, the Rocky Mountain or Spine of the Continent Wildway, the Pacific Crest and Coast Wildway and the Boreal Wildway. Those are particularly important. And I think we can also do good work in a proposed Gulf Wildway or um, Southeast Coastal Plain Wildway, as Reed Noss and others ha have pointed out. I think a lot of people, first of all, are going to be very surprised at your aquatic choice for the East. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think American eel is at the top of, of very many people's uh, mm -hmm. list of animals that they think about often. And, and I can just hear people's fingers clicking away at Google to go and find out more. So that's really awesome. And this is also an indication of why you are going to be on this podcast a lot because you're an infinite source of information like that. And we're only just scratching the surface today. But when you started to get into plant species and things like that, th that reminded me of the kinds of discussions we had in the Sky Island Wildlands Network discussions in the late 90s, which is we started talking about what, how do we language this so people understand it? Well, we need to talk about pumas and wolves, and then we need to explain why. And can you explain mm -hmm. why there's, I mean, you can say in rewilding circles, I want pumas here and wolves here, and everybody will know exactly what that means from infrastructure. Like you can't just put a puma in a place where a puma can't live. There's so many things that it depends on prey species and and everything else, and then those prey species depend on so many other things. Can you explain what it means? Like what we're saying when we say wolves belong here and wolves will help take care of the rest of everything around here? 
part of what we're saying is this landscape, this region will be more beautiful when it has all its all its original inhabitants, all its neighbors. When we have all our neighbors who should be here, we will see a more we will be surrounded by more beauty. We will see more complexity. We will see a more organic wholeness. And I think we should never downplay the significance of beauty itself. My my late friend and mentor Doug Tompkins was was always talking about the importance of recognizing beauty and celebrating beauty and protecting beauty. And Tom Butler, who worked for a long time, longer than I did, actually, with Doug Tompkins, is, is emphasizing, emphasizing that often in his talks these days. We need to protect and restore natural beauty. Dave Foreman uses a, a comparable message in many of his talks. And, and I think when he's talking about the importance of protecting wildlife for its own sake, I think that's another way of, of making this point. I think people actually intuitively recognize wild nature and wild creatures as being beautiful and having value in and of themselves, not not needing to be justified in human terms. So I think it's always good, even if we're going to trot out the human benefits of restoring some natural place or returning a missing species, I think it's always important to remind each other, these creatures have their own reasons to be quite apart from us or quite above and beyond us. They have their own beauty, their own intrinsic value. And I think people understand that message. And I think we actually underestimate people if we assume they need to be convinced of conservation or restoration projects in human or utilitarian terms. Maybe some do, but I think many, many do not. And actually, interestingly, kids, kids have a natural affinity for wild creatures. Kids love climbing trees and playing in creeks and catching frogs and looking at big wild animals. We should encourage that in children, help them keep that natural curiosity, help them maintain that natural affinity they have for wild creatures and places, help them grow those natural relationships and affinities they have with wildlife. Biologically, you're saying an awful lot when you say we want to restore uh, connectivity for pine martens in the northern Midwest. I mean, you're not just talking about pine martens. I mean, you, no, you're right. talking about yeah. so, so much more, but it gave us the ability, because if anybody's ever seen one of these mapping projects, one of these, one of these uh, with conservationists in the room, uh, conservation biologists in the room, and um, GIS specialists in the room, and, and activists and everybody else, there's a lot of smart people who have very specific specialities that are shouting out things. Well, we got to talk about this. Well, what about, what about the pine Martin? What about the uh, American eel? Like there will be somebody in the room. If you're in the right room that will know about the American eel a great deal and probably has dedicated most of their professional life to it. And that's what it's like. And then everybody starts looking around. It gets to be close to uh, dinner time. And we've been shouting out like basically an inventory of everything that's in our beloved places. And we're not even close to being done yet. And we all realize we need a way to talk about this, not only for ourselves to be able to plan something that makes sense that's not so con complicated that we never get it done, but also how to turn around and talk to people and, you know, who would be our supporters about this. Yeah, they, and, you know, basically their needs are not that different from people. So Puma need plenty of cover. They need 
They need plenty of trees or other cover around so that they can be the stealth hunters that they naturally are. They need plenty of prey. That is food. They need deer or elk to be around because they prefer big prey, although they'll also take smaller animals. They need plenty of room to roam, partly so they can mix genes and find mates. Uh, So their needs are not that different from ours. And, And again, with these wide-ranging, space-demanding species, if you protect enough of them for pumas or wolves or wolverines, you're probably protecting enough for most native species. Not necessarily all, but most. And then to, to your point about language, I think Dave Foreman has really helped us. And of course, he's, he's my longest-time mentor and a dear friend, as well as the, the person who has taught me most about conservation. <clears throat> I think his his he likes to use the term neighborhood or wild neighborhood. I think that's mm-hmm. a really good way to to talk about our wild neighbors. They are not simply they are they're not simply resources by any means. They are our wild neighbors. Sue, Sue Morris is also very strong on this. Sue Morris, the the founder of Keeping Track and one of the greatest trackers of of current times in North America. She's also a brilliant photographer, a, a great speaker, and she she talks with tremendous passion about our wild neighbors and helps people of all walks of life. She'll talk just as easily with a bunch of trappers as she will with a bunch of bird watchers, and she talks about our wild neighbors and how we need to understand them and understand where they're trying to move. That's part of what she, why she spends so much of her life tracking is she wants to know where the animals need to move so that she can help protect their habitat, help protect their travel ways. Sometimes when Sue Moore starts a, starts a slideshow, she's showing just dozens of these gorgeous photographs that she takes in natural settings. She's an amazing, oh, yeah. uh, amazing wildlife. Yeah, you've seen her work and you've been out in the Oh, movie. actually, you know I've been this. trained by yeah. her. I brag to this day yeah. that I am a yeah. Sue Moore, not officially trained. I haven't yeah. taken one of her official, but we did work in Sky Island Alliance and we, we had her come down and uh, we were ripping out roads in the Forest Service, yep. kind of related to what we were talking about earlier. Um, so we've started our own little conservation course, <laughs> as I recall, yeah. now that I'm thinking of it. Uh, and, and as a re- reward for that really, 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 really hard work and the, the heat and the, it was just not fun to do. Very rewarding, but the big reward was having people like Sue come in and just teach. Um, and, yeah. you know, she'd put little uh, footprints through our camp at night and be somewhat disappointed in the morning when people weren't even seeing them. They were just running for their breakfast and stepping on the, the carefully placed prints. And, uh, but, I mean, I learned a lot from her in just a very short amount of time. I, I consider people who live around her and can work with her a lot to be some of the luckiest people. She's a great teacher and a tracker, and I really like the way she starts a slideshow of her amazing wildlife photos by saying, these are your neighbors. And she's really good at echoing that point and making people internalize it. These are your neighbors. Treat them well. And it really brings everything home. If somebody's listening to this and they're super inspired, but they have no clue what to do, what about jobs? What about careers, uh, schooling, things like that that you would recommend where, where you see that we are maybe lacking and needing more people, more troops? Thankfully, we see in the United States at least, and I suspect in Canada, Mexico, and European countries, and probably in African countries, I just don't know those places well enough to say, but certainly in the United States, we see many really strong environmental studies programs. And I hope the Rewilding Institute will more and more be working with 
environmental studies programs, and of course, other conservation and restoration groups too, not just the Rewilding Institute, but certainly us among many, working with professors and students to identify important rewilding projects. And we're actually doing this informally with at least two professors, David Schwartz in Virginia, I believe he is, and Susie O'Keefe in Maine, working with them to help their students identify rewilding research needs. And one project I suggested to David Schwartz for his students is an inventory of rewilding initiatives throughout the country, throughout the United States at least, and ideally even beyond that, or if the student has very limited time, maybe just throughout her or his home region. Identify the rewilding initiatives. There have actually been many successful There are many successful species restoration stories. Quite a few animals are on the land in various regions now that were not there a century ago. Fishers and Martin in the northeastern United States, for instance, wolves more famously in Yellowstone, the Mexican wolf that our conservation carnivore biologist Dave Parsons advocates so effectively for in Arizona and New Mexico. Many conservation restoration success stories, many rewilding success stories. I think it'd be very valuable for students and professors to be working together to identify those stories. We'd be happy to run many, many of those stories in Rewilding Earth and to do podcasts of the protagonists involved. On the groundwork is boundless. There are always places where we can directly engage with the right oversight, with a land trust or with a a knowledgeable landowner or with a, a government agency or a wildlife agency to remove exotic species perhaps, to replant denuded stream banks, possibly even to assist in the the uh, compassionate capture, relocation, and re- release of a wildlife species. So many, many on-the-ground projects that can be joined, uh, often in cooperation with a wildlife agency or a land trust, and many, many ed- research and education projects that should should be advanced as well. I'll let you go now, but you're going to have to come back and we're going to have to talk more. And thanks so much for making the time for being on uh, the podcast. Thank you, Jack. It's an honor to be working with you and we will keep promoting rewilding in, in many ways. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.